to bring their dispute with the Iranian government on the subject of the termination of the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil companies. Uh, Throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostages. Separation is the first movie from Iran to win the Academy Award for... The game, some said, would never take place. Here it is unfolding with real drama, and it's Iran, five minutes before... Hello and welcome to the Iran 1400 English Podcast. My name is Christian Petrillo. And I am Sydney Martin. Sydney, would you like to tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure thing, Christian. So my name is Sydney Martin. I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin in 2019 with a Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures degree. I studied Persian as well as Arabic and I focused on modern Iranian history and the language purification movement. How about you, Christian? Well, thank you. You have a very interesting background, Sydney. All of that is super interesting. Like Sydney, I graduated in, from with a bachelor's degree in 2019 from the University of Pennsylvania. I majored in German language and literature. And I also received minors in Russian and Eastern European studies and Persian and Iranian studies. What really made me interested in Iran was, first and foremost, the Persian language and its rich literary history. In fact, most of my time at Penn, I really focused on that and especially modern literature and how it had been influenced by various literary movements in the West mm -hmm. and in Russia. Fascinating. So let's talk about the Iran 1400 project a little bit. As you may know, Iranians entered a new century based on the solar calendar this year. And the Iran 1400 project attempts to foster deeper thought about where Iran has been and where it is going. Basically, this project invites scholars and thinkers to advance a better understanding of the evolution of ideas and institutions in Iran during the past 100 years. And we try to encourage the Iranian people themselves to reflect on their past and the future they want. So with the Iran 1400 project, we just hope to encourage dialogue and give folks who come to our website something to think about, something to reflect on about Iran, and overall just uh, give them a resource for, for learning more about Iran, because right now we are lacking, uh, we are lacking resources mm -hmm. for learning. Exactly. So in today's podcast, we will be talking about an event that we had a couple weeks ago with four experts on Iran. Uh, these four voices shared their views on the women's movement in Iran and its history and the evolutions that it, it has gone through until today. Uh, for example, we'll be starting by going over some brief history about women's involvement in the constitutional revolution in the Qajar era. And then we'll be talking about the role of women in the Pahlavi era. And we'll be ending with not only uh, the role of women and the rights of women in the Islamic regime era, but we'll also be talking about uh, the, the women's movement going forward and what we hope to see 
uh, we this uh, event was in Farsi, so we will just be relaying the information to y'all and touching on the four uh, panelists, what they had to say. We'll just be summarizing that for y'all in this first episode. And then in the second episode, we will be putting our own opinions out there, uh, Christian and I's, and talking about what we thought of the event, what we thought of what the speakers said, and our analysis. So let's introduce the panelists. I want to the first panelist was Mehrangi's car. She's a writer, attorney, and an activist who specializes in women's rights and family law. She practiced law in the Islamic Republic for 22 years and published numerous books and articles on issues related to law, gender, and gender equality and democracy in Iran and abroad. Mm-hmm. Great. We also have Huma Hudfar, who is a professor emerita of anthropology from Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Her research is mainly based on the ideas of political economy and legal anthropology. She's focused on reproductive rights, women in formal and informal politics, hijab and dress codes as political institutions, the themes of gender and citizenship, Muslim women's sports as politics, and gender and the public sphere in Islamic context. And we also had Mahbube Abbas Qolizadeh. She's a prominent Iranian women's rights activist. She's a researcher, a journalist, and a documentary filmmaker. She has over 25 years of experience in women's empowerment and research in the Muslim context. She has experience as well in field training and capacity building, multimedia journalism in Iran and neighboring countries, and she has done research regarding the Iranian diaspora. And we also have Aram Hissami, who is a political theorist and professor of political science and philosophy. His specialization is in Western political thought and postmodern philosophy. Uh, his research and publications are focused on the democratic transition, discourse theory, and social change. And with that, let's get started. So uh, the purpose of the Iran 1400 podcast is really to look at uh, the past 100 years in Iran. Despite that, we will be starting today's podcast and the event started going back to the constitutional period. Now, the reason for that, even though it was over 100 years ago, is because women were very active in the constitutional revolution and also because the constitution that came out of the revolution, uh, it still today has an impact on women's rights. And so, as I said, women were very involved in the constitutional revolution, uh, but they worked behind the scenes. And when the actual constitution came into being, their voices were left unheard and they actually did not, although they were very active, uh, there, there were not many laws regarding women in the constitutional 
in the Constitution that came out of that. Um, however, uh, they their voices were left unheard after because they there was no agency for women to protest uh, the lack of rights that they had in that Constitution. Yeah, exactly right, Sydney. So the Constitution of 1906 created a system of modern laws and Marangi's car refers to these laws as modern because they were legislated by a legislature, by a parliamentary body. However, after this constitution, after it came into effect, that legislation remained solely the work of men until much later during the second Pahlavi period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll add that uh, the information that they said about the Constitutional Revolution was very brief, but uh, quite important. The only other or one of the other few details we had about the Constitutional Revolution during the event was Carr mentioning that there was a sheikh, uh, Sheikh Fazlullah Nouri, that advocated for a more religious constitution, and he was executed in 1909. And he had extreme views such as likening women's participation in politics to prostitution. However, his execution was thought to be one of the worst executions in Iran because he was executed because of his thought and mentality rather than any concrete actions. And so with that, um, with this execution, it gave his viewpoint even more wait because after his execution it his ideas started to be spread underground and she mentioned this carmen mentions this because she believes that uh this is another very very influential um event that occurred because his execution and his thoughts being relayed underground eventually developed into new forms that later emerged uh during uh, the period of the Islamic regime with uh, the views of Khomeini. Yeah, and I think this is actually a common theme in the history of Iran throughout the past 100 years. Whenever the government or an authority tries to suppress certain voices, the effect is actually worse than it was before. Exactly. You know, when they try to suppress certain, for instance, ethnic minorities or certain groups, religious groups, women's groups, those groups only become stronger and their platform only becomes much bigger. Definitely. Exactly. It was interesting also how Merengi's car mentioned how Sharia law was a main source of inspiration for legislation after the constitution. Thus, for this reason, Merengi's car mentions no rights were given to women in the constitution and they were not even considered as citizens. This may seem something that is a bit odd, but actually many other constitutions, even the, the Constitution of the United States, is said to have been inspired by Old Testament religious laws like the Ten Commandments. And this is also true for many of the constitutions of Western European democracies. However, We've seen over time how those constitutions have been amended and greater rights have been granted to not only women, but also other minority groups. Definitely. Thanks for pointing that out, Christian, because as we continue, we will be able to see 
that the constitution that was established during this period is still a a backbone of the constitutions that existed in coming or in the the periods after that Mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting to uh, contrast that with uh, like the American constitution as well because um, the steps have been made that may not have been made in Iran things like that and we will get into that so those were the main points that we felt the need to mention about the constitutional period. Now we can get into the Pahlavi period. You have, you have given women in your country their human rights. Mm-hmm. What about equal in... Uh, Intelligence? Well, there are cases, sure. You can always have some exceptions and find fantastic women. Here or there. But yes, but on the average. Do you feel your wife can govern as well as a man? I prefer not answer. But you have made your wife... So the Pahlavi period is a period, for those who may not know, uh, that was a... that really stressed modernization in Iran. Both Reza Shah Pahlavi and his son, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, were very pro-modernization. And this was for a variety of reasons. Um, Reza Shah Pahlavi pushed modernization because he wanted to strengthen his military and strengthen his rule. And Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, his son, he he also wanted a stronger military and, of course, a stronger rule. But another thing that and another reason that he pushed um for modernization within iran was because he wanted iran to be seen as a sort of western superpower so along with this modernization came the modernization of women's rights and i just felt like mentioning that background because it's interesting to see the the desires here because it's not necessarily that uh, Reza Shah and Mohammed Reza Shah were pushing for women's movement because uh, pushing for progress in the women's movement because they they were incredibly um, passionate about the women's movement. It just sort of came hand in hand with modernization in general. Um, and that had been set up, of course, by other countries who go through this sort of general um, path of, of modernization usually includes um, pushing for women's rights. So I just felt like showing that background there um, so that we can understand the intentions of um, the leaders during this period. However, despite those intentions, uh, it is it cannot be debated that women's rights progressed during that period. And it started with literacy and education. And then they gained the right to vote. And they also gained other family protections during this period. And as I said, women's issues uh, were considered symbols of progress and modernity for the government. And Hudfar mentions that and really stresses that. Yeah, exactly. And there was a consensus among our speakers that 
there were a series of openings in the government for women during the Pahlavi period. And this was especially true for education and just a greater presence in the public Mm -hmm, bureaucracy. mm -hmm. And another thing that I thought was interesting about the Pahlavi period is that the speakers talked about how confrontation with religious forces led to a close association between women and the regime. And as I said previously, both of uh, the the Pahlavi leaders uh, really pushed women's modernization. So because of that, if you were an activist or if you were someone who just was interested in um, in progressing the women's movement, you were associated with uh, the, the Pahlavi regime. And because of that, a confrontation was created because the Pahlavi leaders um, were very pro-modern and they were going up against uh, Islamic forces, people who were pushing for a more type of Islamic regime. Uh, And so because of that, there was a confrontation and the women or anyone who supported the women's movement was often lumped together with the regime and thus was... Uh, seen or assumed to be anti-Islam in a way. Exactly. So the main ideologies of the time were pro-regime means pro-modernity, pro-Western ideology. And on the other side of that was Islam, religion, traditionalist, orientalist, Mm -hmm. backward looking. Mm -hmm. And because the Pahlavi regime really put the rights of women at a center point in its policy, women therefore became almost a, a, the advancement of women rather became a symbol of the regime. And therefore, as you mentioned, Sydney, they were pitted against religion. And that's the reason why the women's movement was, in fact, one of the main complaints of religious forces against the Shah. Mm-hmm. Um, at one period during the reign of Reza Shah, upper class and elite women were the driving force of the women's movement. So by upper class and elite women, we mean educated women, those who had economic opportunities and also took advantage of the educational opportunities which were granted them during the Pahlavi period. Mm-hmm. Those people were the driving force of the women's movement. There were also administrations that led this movement, organizations, and most of them were headquartered or located in big cities. And therefore, we conclude that the women's movement grew with the body of power, which at that time, as we mentioned, was the Pahlavi regime. They were very much intertwined. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Thanks for mentioning that, Christian. And uh, another thing that was associated with the Pahlavi regime was an opening of the political environment, specifically under Mohammad Reza Shah in the beginning of his reign. Um, the political environment opened up and various parties formed. And women then understood that in order to ensure their rights, they had to participate. 
And with that, a two-sided relationship between women and parties was created. Exactly. And also, during this time, this only became amplified after the 1953 coup. Influential women were forced to work in the government, meaning that they accepted positions as ministers or other government bureaucrats. And so after 1953, women, especially in these positions, began to truly understand government, the inner workings of it, what is nationalism, what is Islamism. And this was right before the eventual 1979 revolution. In fact, for this reason, some of our panelists suggested that really women were, in part, a backbone of that revolution. Mm-hmm. And Mehrengi's car mentioned that also uh, an interesting thing that happened during the Pahlavi era under Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi was that many women who participated in the movement were seen as collaborators with Ashraf Pahlavi. So Ashraf Pahlavi was Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi's twin sister. And she was sort of seen as a figurehead or the face of the women's movement. So after the 1953 coup, many Iranians assumed that she had involvement in the coup and that she pushed her brother to support the overthrow of Mohammad Mossadegh. And with that, she lost credibility. Still, uh, because she was the most popular woman Uh, regarding the women's movement, many people automatically assumed, oh, that if if you support the women's movement, you must be a supporter of uh, Ashraf Pahlavi because her brother gave her so many positions of power regarding the women's movement. And he, um, these were, these included many government organizations. So it became hard to lose that association for women they were just automatically assumed to be associated with uh, Ashraf Pahlavi. I thought that was very interesting. I, I had no idea until Carr mentioned it that she was such a staple as, um, or as assumed to be a staple because she said that many women actually did not want to be associated with Ashraf Pahlavi, especially after she lost credibility, but that that reputation and that association still lingered for quite a long time. Yeah, that's very fascinating, in fact. Uh, and it's an example of how a certain supposed figurehead of a movement can actually be used to be weaponized against the movement. Mm-hmm or at least the individual members of that movement. Uh, Marangi's car also mentioned, very interestingly, how the civil law drafted in the time of Reza Shah was actually not very progressive at all and was anti-women in terms of divorce law and inheritance. However, she contrasts this with the advancements and the reforms made in criminal law. And under the period of Reza Shah. And she mentions how public punishment was totally abolished, public stonings, public killings, things like that. She also goes on to mention the Family Protection Law, which was a series of enactments passed first in 1967 and later in 1975. These laws were extremely progressive 
and were huge advancements for women, especially in terms of divorce, hiring the minimum age of marriage eventually to 18 in 1975, also reforming child custody laws. This was a huge issue. In fact, one of the most famous Iranian women of the past 100 years, Farouk Faradzad, actually suffered from this a great deal because she divorced her husband at a young age. She actually was married, I think, at the age of 17 and had a young a young son who, after the, her divorce, she was not able to see him and she suffered a great, through many bouts of depression because of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The 1975 Family Protection Law changed that, in fact. Of course, she never got to see that enactment. That's interesting. I I didn't know that, Christian. Thank you. Um, maybe one day we'll be able to do a podcast about Ferrochsad. I think that would be super interesting. Um, so from here, I'll mention that after overcoming the 1953 period, women's organizations were established and they worked with men to ratify this family protection law. And with that, let's listen to Carr speak about um, the path of women. پس یه منحنی صاف و ساده نیست نمیتونیم بگیم منحنی وضعیت قانونی یا اجتماعی زنان یه منحنی از پایین به بالا بوده So essentially what Carr is saying here is that the path of women has not been a bottom up curve or vice versa but it is constantly having its ups and downs I think that that's really interesting because I would argue that within a good majority of countries, as you look at the women's movement, it's pretty, um, it's it's in a constant state of progression. Not uh, a ton of countries have such a um, have such a big jump backwards, if that makes sense. Um, like in the U.S., uh, the the rights of women are still increasing, and we don't often take one step, uh, any steps backward. And if we do, it's more like four steps forward, one step back. But in Iran, it, that's that's not the case. And that's what she means by this, that it's, that it's constantly in its ups and downs. Um, the rights of women is, uh, is still changing. And we will see that um, not only during the Pahlavi period, but of especially in the Islamic regime period. Um, Carr mentions here how the political freedom increased from 1941 when Mohammad Reza Shah took power to 1953. But in 1953, a coup occurred and political parties disappeared. And that's when women became excluded from these political activities. You could still see them uh, involved in government, but it, it was more just under the government of Mohammad Reza Shah and less in different political parties. And I think that this point really sums up the women's movement as a whole. And we can get more into that as we head into the Islamic regime period about how the women's movement is not a constant upward trend, but it is consistently going up and down.
If you're interested in learning more about the women's movement in Iran, please go to our YouTube channel or our website, iran1400.org. There you can see an English interview with Dr. Ali Akbar Mont, who is an emeritus professor of sociology from Ohio Wesleyan University. His video is titled, Women's Movement and Historical Approach. Demonstrations like these today in Tehran are a daily occurrence in towns throughout the country now, and one sign of the fact there is nothing less than a kind of revolution being attempted here, trying to change the form of Iran's government, and unlikely to settle easily for any solution which still keeps the Shah on his throne. Daily, it has become more difficult to live و متکی بر قوانین اسلام این جایگزین حکومت سلطنتی فعلی میشه so humahud far mentions interestingly that after the 1979 revolution uh, that brought the islamic republic into power women were no longer seen as manifestations of progress and modernity but rather they transformed into a central area of ideology the Islamic government preferred women as soldiers at the service of regime leaders and really did not want to permit women to question leaders or the ideas of the revolution. Hudfar also mentions an irony in laws changing in Iran that I thought was really fascinating. She mentions that while in the minds of revolutionaries, the word of God and Sharia law cannot be changed, there was there still was a, a constant change in laws within the constitution. And essentially... Um, Sharia law should be a constant. It should not continue to be reinterpreted. Its, its interpretation should be solid and concrete. However, despite that, um, although the people, the Iranians who were establishing these constitutions are, are you know, advocates of uh, Sharia law, they are consistently changing the the laws within the constitution and she mentioned that just to um point out the hypocrisy there i thought that was really interesting um she also said that the islamic regime has politicized everything in iran and that's another fascinating point as well um because the politicization of the women's movement can be seen as a weapon if um, if the women's movement is politicized, then the Islamic regime has more power to suppress it. If it were less about politics and more just a general sort of social movement, it would be harder to do so. But if it can be seen as directly coming in conflict with the Islamic regime, then the regime has more power to suppress it. Yeah, exactly. And even more so... Going a step further, the Islamic regime 
as as was previously mentioned, pitted women against their religion and therefore also pitted women against the government, which was supposed to represent them and was supposed to guarantee them more freedom and more access to rights and opportunity. This really caused or really led to an awakening among women in the country as religion slowly began to dominate various facets of society. Women began to feel personally attacked, personally pitted against the rest of society. Very interesting, Christian. And following that, the Islamic regime instated a mandatory wearing of the hijab. And this is something that I just first and foremost want to uh, want to mention is less about the act of the choice of wearing the hijab. It's a lot of people, especially people who live in Western countries, view the hijab as uh, an oppressive symbol of sorts. But that was never really a an issue for the women's movement, the choice of wearing the hijab. Um, if, if Muslim women choose to wear the hijab, um, that didn't bother Iranian women who chose not to. Um, and it was less about that and more about this lack of choice. So with the mandatory wearing of the hijab, n- women no longer had a choice to decide if that was what they wanted to do. There was no... Um, bodily autonomy there. They could not decide uh, whether or not they would be putting the hijab um, on on their body. And with that, that's what um, that's what many Iranian women who are involved in the women's movement are outraged about. Um, even those who choose to wear the hijab, It doesn't bother them or it doesn't bother the majority of them if uh, people choose not to and they're outraged that that choice is gone. And Christian, I I really liked what you said about the private versus the public sphere if you wanted to explain that real quickly. Exactly, Sydney. I think it's important to mention how, again, this idea of forcing the hijab was actually very antithetical to laws and reforms passed by the Pahlavi regime, who in its early days mm-hmm. actually passed a law which banned the hijab outright. Now, this was something that was a direct influence of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk's reforms in Turkey. Yes, for sure. Who, like the Pahlavi leaders, was a Western-oriented leader mm-hmm. who wanted to rid his society of any Orientalist or Islamic symbols the hijab being one of them, but certainly not the only one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When the Islamic regime came to power, it totally reversed this idea. Again, this is not the only thing that it reversed, but certainly a very symbolic thing. And the hijab began to take on a different symbolic power. It meant that now that women are forced to wear this article of clothing, this religious article of clothing, that women should be relegated to the private sphere, meaning the home. They aren't welcome to debate their ideas in the public square or 
to to engage in certain issues that should really only be for men. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't walk out on the street, but literally when they do walk on the street, they should not be identifiable. They shouldn't be seen. So again, you're completely correct to mention that the point of contention here is not hijab or no hijab, like many people, unfortunately, in the West think, but rather the, the point of contention is the choice to whether one wants to wear it or not. Thank you, Christian, for that. I, I appreciate that and definitely agree with everything that you said there. Um, another point after that is that Abbas Khulizadeh mentioned that Islam wanted to restore its identity through the destruction of women. خواست هویت خودش رو احراز بکنه مثل اینکه یک کسی بیاد با در هم کوبیدن یک بخشی از جامعه بخواد قدرت خودش رو نشون بده Now earlier I brought up the point about how many people assumed that if you were pro advancing women's rights you were pro pahlavi uh, Here, we have an interesting difference, uh, but also a very similar um, association, if that makes sense, um, that traditional women and uh, religious women were often associated here in this period with the Islamic regime. And because of that, leftists and secular women had a hard time trusting these traditional women. Um, in the first decade of the revolution, various ideologies separated these women. And because of that, um, it, it, it created this, this lack of trust that did not at all help the women's movement um, because there was not a unity between women here. But after the Iran-Iraq war, which ended in 1988, during the reform period, the women's press started to operate and the environment opened up more. And the line here between the Islamic and secular women was broken. And there was more of a unity after that. Uh, the period then became one of realism where neither modernity nor Islam was important. It was a period when the social and individual realities like issues of children's custody, social rights and women's citizenship found prominence. Exactly right. And again, Carr mentions and reiterates often the fact that the family protection law was repealed as a direct order of Ayatollah Khomeini. And throughout the years following the revolution, social freedoms began to be taken away through fatwas in accordance with the Islamic penal code. The Islamic Penal Code, Marangi's car mentions, views women as second-class citizens, making them subject to violence and murder without certain special legal protections. The most important obstacle for women under the Islamic Republic, according to Marangi's car, is how to gain rights when opposing Islam, opposing Islamic law, is a dangerous crime in Iran, which is punishable by death. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Christian. Now, lastly, 
Uh, we mentioned four panelists were in this event earlier, yet we've only discussed three for this whole time. And the reason for that is because the last panelist sort of just provided a brief summary and his viewpoints, and he posed um, less he, – he mentioned less history and instead posed more questions about the future. He mentioned three established accomplishments that women – have uh, today and let's take a listen here یک اول از همه مسئله آموزش و پرورش حق آموزش و پرورش زنان دومیش مسئله حق رای اتخاذ حق رای برای زنان و سومیش من فکر کنم که شاید از همه اینا مهمتر از یه لحاظ باشه مسئله ورود زنان به بازار کار Here, Aram has mentioned that the three established accomplishments for women are the right to vote, the right to education, and the entrance into the workforce. And he then thinks about the future here and wonders how can they enter the political arena and overshadow the law and government to regain their demands. He also uh, talks about how there's been an encounter between the Iranian Islamic law and modernity and liberalism. He mentions that second-class status of women is legal and privacy of women based on guardianship has been given to men or completely ignored. And so he wonders how, with in mind, or with the three established accomplishments in mind, how can women reclaim their natural rights? Yeah, and Aram Hassami also mentions how the future will be extremely crucial for women's movements and women in Iran, and that it will not just concern a debate about rights, but a crucial question will be how women's political, cultural, social, and economic power will find feedback in society. What will their reaction be towards these kind of groups? He mentions how in America, a number of government actions exist for the atonement of inequality against women or African-Americans. One of them notably is affirmative action. And he mentions how on paper it may seem to actually be discriminatory, but such laws are actually necessary to rise the status of women or other minorities when in reality actually women are not minorities in many societies they are the majority of the population but still because of their history of inequality and mistreatment they are worthy of certain laws which help them gain equal financial, political, and legal status. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to mention real quick, and I will definitely talk more about this in the analysis, that I just loved uh, that Aram Hassami brought up that uh, comparison with affirmative action. I think that is a great point to think about um, because the purpose of affirmative action is that, yes, maybe on paper, um, uh, minorities in America today have um, equal rights, but that doesn't erase the years and the history where they did not have those equal rights. And so that comparison being made to women allows us to think that, okay, in the future, even if women do gain 
their equal rights with men, um, they they're that will not erase this history. And we need or the Iranian people should think about how even if they do accomplish that, how they can make up for all that time lost. And I think that's a really good point to end on as we wrap up our summary of the event and we think about what questions we have for the analysis of the event. And so that is the end of our summary. And we will be having a part two of this podcast uh, where we will talk about our thoughts and feedback and essentially just how we felt in general about um, this event and what questions that that arose in us. Uh, so y'all can find us on social media. Uh, y'all can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Iran1400Project. And if you're interested in contributing to the project, you can email us at media at iran1400.org. Thank you for listening and please share this podcast with your friends and other like-minded or not like-minded people (laughs) and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast application so you know when our next episode will be released. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Like Christian said, please do share with your friends, family, neighbors, whoever, whether or not they're interested in Iran, maybe this will spark that interest for them. 